Say your Bibles tonight, please turn to James chapter 1. We'll strive to finish the first chapter tonight. And I hope that you understand that we are moving very quickly through the book. If we're going to finish it in 10 weeks, uh, there's so much here. And I encourage you, as I did in the introduction, to read uh, through the book of James every day if you can. Uh, While we do this study, you will have read it many, many times by the time we are finished. It only takes just a few minutes to read through the entire five chapters. And that will help you because we are going to go very quickly. I already have uh, 12 full pages of type notes, and uh, we're only on lesson two. And now we took two weeks for lesson one. Uh, so I'm really just giving you the overview of what, what I am studying. And so I really encourage you, just take the time, read it through, and it'll just help it all come together. Does anybody need a handout? If you need a handout, please raise your hand. I know we were running low on them, which is a great problem. If you need one, please raise your hand very quickly. Mr. Ronson has those. All right, James chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 17. We'll just read two verses for now, and we'll make our way through. Last week we talked about the Christian and his battles, those temptations, those trials of life. And tonight we turn to uh, the Christian and his Bible. The Christian and his Bible. And you will notice, if I can just give you an overview, why this is centered around the Word of God tonight. Look in verse 18. The Bible says, Of his own will begat us with the word of truth. All right? Uh, Of his own will he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creature. Now look down in verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word... And not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. And then we look down in verse 25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. And so we see a recurring theme about the Word of God. In the passage tonight, the context is all about the Word of God. So we have the Christian and his battles, but you'd be foolish to go into battle without your sword. And so tonight, we're going to look at the Christian and his Bible. So let's make our prayer tonight. And ask God for help as we look at uh, the last 11 verses of the chapter. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand tonight as we continue in this series through the book of James and look at the Christian and his Bible tonight. And we uh, help us to take these three illustrations that James gives us and help us to understand what he is trying to teach us through your Holy Spirit's power and presence. Fill me, I pray. I need your help. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So look at James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, I've already told you that the context here is about the Word of God, and we will see that develop as we go through the lesson. But what a great introduction about the Word of God. It is a perfect gift that comes from the Father of lights who has no variableness nor shadow of turning. And we'll look a little deeper at those terms, but what a great introduction about the Word of God. Verse 18, Of His own will begat He us with the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So if you look in your notes tonight, (coughs) excuse me, I'm going to take a little sip here. It's got a tickle. <clears throat> the Christian and his Bible. The Bible is likened to three different illustrations that we find in James. <coughs> excuse me, James chapter one, verses seventeen and on. And the first illustration we see is letter A. God's word is likened to a gift. God's word is likened to a gift. 
I, I, I like to alliterate when I preach, but you will find tonight that God already alliterated these three points for us, all right? So God's word, first of all, is likened to a gift. And verse 17 talks about that gift. And number one, it's a gift that brings divine light. A gift that brings divine light. Where would we be without the word of God? We'd be plunged into darkness. Now notice what the Bible says in verse 17, and we'll pick apart the verse as we go. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. <coughs> so the source of this gift is from God who is the Father of lights and it sheds divine light into our lives. And so as we think about this divine gift and this divine light, we see letter A, the nature of the gifts. The nature of the gifts. And I want you to notice about these gifts that God gives us. First of all, in specific, the Word of God. But secondly, in general, I believe He's talking about everything that God gives us. And so we see, first of all, their monopoly. What do you mean by monopoly? Look what the Bible says every good gift. If somebody owns, does anybody like that game, Monopoly? You do? Some of you do? Man, I can't stand that game. And uh, I, I just, it takes hours and hours and hours, and it's just, I don't like it at all. But I understand the object of the game. You're supposed to own everything. That's what a monopoly is, is when you have a sole ownership of everything in a particular field. So you have a monopoly in that field, and so it's a, you, you have no competition because you have a monopoly. You know that nobody can compare to God? Every good thing, every good gift is from God. Think about all that is good that is within you. Where did that come from? That came from the presence of Jesus Christ being infused into your life in the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible has good, or the world, I should say, has some people that appear to be good people, but the Bible is very plain. There is none that doeth good. They're all like, we like sheep have gone astray. And so all that is good is within us is because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so, boy, there's a point to be thankful for. Anytime we experience something good, we can say, that came from God. And we must acknowledge that. So, their monopoly of these gifts. God has a monopoly on good. Now, look what Matthew chapter 7, verse says, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. I'll read it to you. But if you want to make a note in your notes. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? I had a thought today that I never had before when I was going over my notes when Jesus said, What man is there of you, of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? It reminded me of when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, and the devil, he'd been fasting for 40 days, and the devil knew he was hungry. What did he offer him to eat? A stone. He said, why don't you take that stone and turn it into bread? I think Jesus was kicking the devil in the shins right here. He says, that's not a good gift when a man asks for bread and you give him a stone. And he's trying to say, I'm different than the devil. The devil gives these wicked things, and I only give good gifts, and the Father above only gives good gifts. And so he has a monopoly on gifts. And then we see, secondly, their majesty. Verse 17, the Bible says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I want you to notice, letter A, they are godlike in their purity. The Bible says, Every good gift. 
every good gift. That word good means to be right and pure and whole. Now, we, we don't always use words like they were first intended, and so we may have some supper, and we might say, well, that was, that was a pretty good supper. Well, pretty good, you're qualifying it. Or we might just say, that was a good supper, or a good program I watched on the TV, or it was, something was good, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was pure and right and perfect, but that's what the Bible means when it says good. There is none that doeth good, we're not right before God, we're not righteous before God. And so when we see the word good, we know that the Bible is talking about a purity and a righteousness. So these gifts are God-like in their purity. What God has given us is right and pure and clean. Let me put it this way. I told you about this lady before. She got up and gave a testimony, and she said that she said that she was having a problem with her neighbor because her little dog was barking, and the lady was trying to rebuke her, and she says, boy, the Holy Spirit just filled me, and God gave me the words to say, and I looked her in the eye, and I said, you witch. That is not a good and pure thing that did not come from God. And so we can judge these gifts, can't we? We know that these, and by the way, she stood up in church and said that. We can tell if God has given us these gifts because they will have that goodness, that purity, that righteousness. So every good gift is from above. And then the Bible also says it's a perfect gift. So it's God-like in its perfection. God-like in their perfection, these gifts. Every perfect gift. It is perfect because its source is God. You know, there often are these puzzles and riddles that go around. Is God not able to do certain things? Can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? That's just foolish stuff. But there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot remember my sins once they've been washed in the blood. They've been thrown to the depths of the deepest sea. But I also know this. God cannot give anything that's not perfect. Because whatever God makes, the Bible says he saw in the creation, it was good. Remember that word good means. So God creates perfect things. Sin is what destroys it. Your gift that God gave you, the gift of salvation, was perfect. Doesn't mean we're perfect, because sin destroys. But God gave us the perfect gift. And so every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. When I think about that perfect gift, I think about no assembly required. That word perfect means complete and whole. You know, I'm glad we're past these days, but I remember when kids would get toys for Christmas... And one time I remember in particular getting this little doll. It was just a doll. It didn't do anything special. Somebody gave one of the girls a doll. It was just a doll. That thing was attached to the cardboard box inside that thing with about 43 twist ties that were not just normal twist ties. I mean, this was some sort of cable that you could pull your car with. Then it had plastic tabs with screws going through them so the head wouldn't turn. It took me an hour to just get the thing out of the box. I, I thought, man, I'm gonna, it'd be easier if I popped the head off and then slide it out this way, but that wouldn't work. But you know those kids' toys, you get them and you got to assemble them and fix them, and by the time you're done, the kid's playing with the box. But this gift that God gives us, it's ready to go. You can plug it into your life and benefit from it instantly. Man, don't you like the new... Things that are plug- you, you get something, know something, you plug it into the wall, oh man, it's ready to go. You push a button and off she goes. That's how God's gifts are. They're complete, they're whole, they're perfect, they're ready to use. And so God's gifts are God-like in their purity and they're God-like in their perfection. But I want you to see more importantly than the gift is the giver. 
You know, we often seek the gifts, but we ought to seek the giver of the gifts. And the Bible talks about him, if you look at uh, chapter 17 as well, or verse 17, the second part. So every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from who? The Father of lights, of whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't like things that change a whole lot. If I get something that I really like and somebody changes it or it's not available anymore, I kind of get a little frustrated over that. For a while there, I, I really liked when I was trying to be healthy, if I, if I had to eat out, I tried to be very careful and get a grilled chicken wrap on this thing and, you know, Wendy's, and they changed it. And I went through and I said, I'll have that. And they said, oh, we don't have those anymore, sir. I said, what? That was the best thing on the menu. It was healthy, it was light, it was cheap. Boy, I, you know, kind of, well, they brought it back. I don't know if it was because I complained or not, but they brought it back. But we don't like change as much. The thing, the thing is about this is God's going to behave the same every time you come to him. There's no variableness nor shadow of turning. That's why those, that, that, that phrase is included in the song, Great is thy faithfulness. I mean, that's a comfort. How many of you will go on a trip, and when you're traveling somewhere, uh, I, I remember doing this when we traveled, we didn't risk always going into a restaurant we were unfamiliar with. If we knew that there was a McDonald's or whatever for the kids, we would try to go there because a lot of reasons, we knew it was clean usually, and the bathrooms were usually clean, and we knew what to expect. Especially if we were in a far off strange place where we weren't aware. Because there's a comfort in that. And we're not taking a risk. Listen, God never changes. And there's a comfort in that. How he behaved yesterday, he'll behave tomorrow. And so we think about this gift. And by the way, we're, we're talking about the theme, the Christian and his Bible. This is all revealed in the word of God to us. The Bible is very plain. In the next verse of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. And so as we're thinking about uh, the nature of the giver, I'll give you the two points. Number one, he is unchallengeable. That phrase, father of lights, refers to his high and lofty position. He is the father. The Bible could have used the words here, he is God. But to the casual reader back in the days of James, the Ro a Roman might pick it up and say, well, there's lots of gods out there. But that word father was a term of respect, and it meant above all. We understand that the father is the head of our families. And so from the father of lights, from above, they would have to understand this is the God of gods. This is the king of kings. And so that's the, his, he is unchallengeable. And number two, he is unchangeable. We've already talked about no variableness nor shadow of turning. So now look at number two, a gift that brings divine light, but number two, a gift that brings divine life. A gift that brings life. Number, uh, verse 18, the Bible uh, says, and we've read it many times, of his own will, begat he us. Well, I, I don't know about you, but if you're reading through the Bible right now, you're in the Old Testament. You're in Genesis, Exodus. You're moving through there. If you're reading through a Bible schedule in the year, you have seen the word begat so many times by now, it's driving you crazy. Uh, I, I read in Genesis again, I've been studying through Genesis a bit, and Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat him, and on and on it goes. But I'm thankful the Bible says that I've been begotten, I'm the begotten of God. 
Because Jesus Christ, his son, has shed his blood and infused himself into my life. The Bible says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And so we are the begotten of God now. The Bible says he begat us. How? And the Bible goes on to say, uh, with the word of truth. And so we see, first of all, we were, uh, he, he has brought us divine life according, first of all, letter A, to the will of God. According to the will of God. Here's a wonderful truth. God saved you just because he wanted to. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I like simple things, and I like to know that God saved me just because he wanted to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3.16. And so God saved us. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do. Now, I say that, and with fear and intrepidation, somebody's saying, oh, no, we got a Calvinist. No, but I also know that God has given us a free will. See, God has a perfect will in his sovereignty, and he gives that gift to man, and he set up the plan of salvation because he wanted to, and because he can do whatever he wants to do to satisfy justice and grace, but sin always destroys. And the sin of unbelief is just as sinful as anything else. And when we don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we lose out on that gift and we miss that uh, free gift of salvation. So uh, God, the Bible says this about God's will. God was not willing that any should perish. He had a desire that we'd all come to salvation. So it's according to the will of God. And then we see secondly, according to the will of God. Uh, verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter just a couple pages forward, 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever." For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which by the gospel is preached unto you. So we are saved according to the will of God, and saved according to the word of God. And in James chapter 118, we are saved according to the wisdom of God. The Bible says, that last phrase, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. He said, what's that got to do with wisdom? God, in the Old Testament, had the offering of the first fruits. And they would take those first fruits of the crops, and before they would offer them to God, they would hold them up in the air, and they would do a wave offering. And he said, what was the purpose of that? It was to show everybody else how good God was to you. It wasn't a shameful thing, and we often give a tithe and an offering very privately and quietly, and we get that from the widow that gave her two mites. We're not to be uh, glorying in how much we give, but I think we ought to glory in how good God's been to us. That's the emphasis. 
And that's what the wave offering accomplished in the Feast of the First Fruits. They would take those first fruits and they'd show, look how good God has been. There was no shame because nobody was saying, look how much I'm giving. They'd simply say, look what God has done. Do you know the Bible says that we will be the first fruits of creation? One day we will stand before God and the devil, that accuser, will try to tear us down again and God will hold us up and say, look what my son has done. That's the wisdom of God. Taking a broken and a frail life, covering us in the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, holy to stand before God in his throne. The Bible says that he may present it to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. That's you, the glorious church, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is also according to the wisdom of God. So God's word, first of all, is likened to a gift. Look at number letter B now in your notes. God's word is also likened to a graft. Now I did, I, I will admit that with the alliteration I stretched it just a little bit because the Bible talks about the engrafted word, E-N. But we get the same word here. God's word is uh, likened to a graft. Now look at verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. And there's that word again, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And so we see that God's word is likened to a graft. And, and let me give you number one, to affect a change uh, in your talk. To affect change in your talk. You understand that when God came into our lives, we should have changed. But we also understand that there's a sanctification that takes part by the word of God. And as we read the word of God and get it engrafted into us, as it says then our talk ought to change. That's growth, that's sanctification. And so the Bible talks about that in verse 19. First of all, it says, uh, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. And uh, I've used the phrase in letter A, swift to reason. Swift to reason. Why reason and not hear? Because that's what the word hear means. It means to listen and reason through the words. Not just to hear and let it go in one ear and out the other but to stop and think about it a little bit. And so when God has uh, given us a challenge and somebody comes along with unkind words, the Bible says we are to be swift to hear. That means listen carefully. That means reason about what is going on. Listen intently and think about it. And then we ought to be slow to respond. Slow to respond is letter B. You say, what is the difference? with swift to hear but slow to respond. Well, it means Think about what you're going to say. Take some time. Don't, don't fire back in anger. We've, we've had some issues with a couple of our uh, master club boys, the older boys. And, I, and I'm telling you, I, 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 you try to pull them apart and get them on a bus and they're ready to go. And, and the biggest problem we have is neither one of them will shut up. If they would just stop talking, the other one wouldn't get so angry. And I'd say that, hey, just stop talking, don't say a word, get on the van, get on the bus, don't worry about it. But boy, they just can't let anything go. They gotta fire back. And boy, it just, it just inflames one another. 
One of the best people I ever met to apply this scripture, and I gotta be honest with you, when somebody applies this, it kind of makes you mad. He said, what do you mean? Barry Rutherford, I would talk to him, and we'd, we'd have a coffee or something, and I'd say, listen, let me ask you something, and it's something I read in the Bible, and I, I'd start talking about it, and I'd share this idea, and I, I'd say, I think it means this, and I, we'd go back, and I'd talk about it for a while, and I'd say, what do you think? I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? You must have an opinion. Well, I really haven't had time to read it yet, or pray about it, or think about it, and I don't want to give an answer that's going to be heresy or doctrinally wrong, so I'd really like to think about it. Boy, that made me mad. I want an answer. We're here to talk. But boy, he was good at that. And er almost every time, if I asked him a tough question from the Bible, he'd say, hmm, what kind of answer is that? But then when I read this, I get under conviction because he's being swift to hear and slow to speak. He's going to think about it. He's going to pray about that. He's going to give me a good Bible answer. And I learned to appreciate that. And so the Bible says we are to be uh, swift to reason, slow to respond. And here's the guiding principle, number one, slow to speak. That just means process what you hear before you form an answer. And what, what is the, uh, so we have the, um, uh, sorry, a guiding principle to be slow to speak. Somebody said this, it's better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I'll let that sink in for a minute. So a guiding principle, number two, a gracious principle. Look at the last part of verse 19. Slow to speak, slow to wrath. Slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's the rule. Letter A, the rule, slow to wrath. More grace would be shown if we would just stop and think before we respond and not get angry so quickly. God says, I want you to be slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to speak, Slow to wrath, why? Because that's the rule, and here's the reason, verse 20, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. How quickly can a situation escalate because we don't keep our mouths shut? Very quickly. And so, what is the solution? Well, we're to graft the word of God into our lives and our hearts to effect a change in our talk, but secondly, also to affect a change in our walk. A change in our walk. So look at verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. So we've moved from talk now to our behavior. Now I'll just give you what these mean. The word filthiness, uh, we, we often think of dirty and unclean and, and all those things. The word filthiness means anything that dishonors. Anything that dishonors. That could be your talk. Well, I, I, was, I was somewhere the other day, and I overheard some guys, young men, talking. And the one guy, it didn't matter what he said, it was preceded by the F word, every word. Just on and on and on. And it just started grating on me. i got to get out of here. You know, I, I don't want to be around this. And I was waiting in a line somewhere. It doesn't show intelligence. It just makes him sound foolish. But when I read this scripture, I thought, that's the guy I thought of. That's dishonoring to himself. Anything that dishonors is filthiness. It might be your behavior. It might be what you're looking at, listening to. Whatever dishonors us, that's a very simple way to look at it. That's what the Bible says is filthiness. And then superfluity of naughtiness. What is that? A superfluity is just an abundance of, and naughtiness means the desire to injure. 
Think about that, how we behave with our words sometimes. I'll show him. I'll tell him the truth. Well, you're ugly. Well, you're a jerk, and you're, we're just trying to hurt. We're trying to injure. The Bible says that ought not be named among us. And if we engraft the word of God into our hearts, then those things begin to be weeded out. So he says, wherefore, my lover, or sorry, uh, verse 21, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And then, so we, we are to reject some things. Letter A, that was filthiness and naughtiness. And letter B, we're to receive some things. What are we to receive? It says, we are to receive with meekness the engrafted word. Here's the solution to the tongue and to our walk, to our talk and our walk, is the engrafted word. And so how do we do that? With meekness. Meekness is humility God word. They say, well, why would I need meekness towards God? Because anything God gives me is good. Sometimes God lets things into our lives that hurt. They're for our benefit. They will strengthen us. They'll help us. They're a trial. But when we with meekness accept it, then God is allowed to work in his purpose in our lives. I've got to tell you, there's been lots of times I've sat in the pew and I've heard preaching the word and I go, oh, my toes hurt. Wave the white flag. The, the word of God's hitting me between the eyes tonight and we're to receive that with meekness. Saying, God, I know whatever you give is perfect and good and the right gift and so I'm going to accept it even though I don't like it so much right now. And so that's how we grow let me ask you, what is your reaction when you're confronted with the Word of God? What is your reaction? So we're to reject some things, we're to receive some things, and then what are we to resolve? Look at verse 22, it gives us a resolution. But be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Be ye doers. I just put in my notes this, apply, apply, apply in all obedience. Apply the word of God. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer. A, a, a doer of the word, a hearer only is one that comes to church every week and just sits and listens and leaves unchanged. Be a doer. Apply the word of God. As a matter of fact, when you pray, don't say, God, help me to apply it. Say, God, go ahead and apply it. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to let you do the work. Because when we try to resolve something, when we try to apply it, doesn't always work out, but when we surrender to God and let Him do the work, then He can make a change in our lives. And so it is to affect a change in our walk, and we are to resolve to be a doer of the Word. And so then we see finally tonight, God's Word is likened, first of all, to a gift. It's likened to a graft, and now it's likened to a glass, a mirror, a glass. Verse 23, For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So God's word is likened to a glass, number one, a careless experience. We see a careless experience. First of all, it talks about a foolish condition. For, any, for if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer. So the Bible just identifies, here's a bad situation. If any of you are a hearer only and not a doer, hold on, we've got something for you. And here's what it is. A forceful comparison, letter B. A hearer but not a doer is like a man who looks in the mirror without making any change to his appearance. Now, that may be typical of some men. It really might. I remember one time, years ago, 
I, got, uh, I went up north with a friend, Gary, and we were going fishing. Uh, my dad was there and a couple other guys from our church, and we all went out fishing. And that morning, we wanted to get up and get out, you know, sun up. We wanted to get out there and get fishing. And so we got there the night before. It was late Sunday night. We got to bed early because it was nothing to do. It was dark. And so we got into bed, went to sleep, woke up real early, like 4.35 in the morning. We'd gone to bed about 8.30, 9 o'clock. And so woke up, and I went out there into the living area, and there was Gary. He was already up, and he was sitting there eating a bowl of cereal, and he's getting ready to go fishing. And back then I had hair, and I must have been a sight. And so, I mean, I'd, I had lots of hair too. And it had been all combed up for church the night before, you know, and we drove a little bit and got into bed, and my hair just went like this. And so I sat down across the table from him, and I poured some cereal and poured some milk. He didn't even say good morning yet. And he looked up at me, and he goes, no room, no mirror in your room, huh? I said, oh, do I look that bad? And he just laughed at me. Well, that's kind of a guy way to poke each other. But it's true. There's people that will look, and sometimes I'll look in the mirror and say, I'm kind of fair-haired. And so sometimes I go, well, you know what? It's not showing today. I'm going to skip shaving. But if we look in the mirror and we see that we need to make change and don't make change, then why did you even look in the mirror in the first place? What was the point? If you're going to subject everybody to that look, why did you bother looking? And so that's what the Bible says. A man that is a hearer but not a doer, he's like looking in the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, and yet you're not making any change. That, that just seems pointless. It's unfortunate a lot of people do look in the Word of God every day and they read through the Bible at a, on a schedule as fast as they can, but they're not doing anything to change and they're not letting it affect their heart. That's pointless. Perhaps it has just become a formality. Why do you look in the Word? Because, well, I have a schedule and I read it every day. It's just a formality. Or perhaps when we look in the Word of God, what we see we consider to be good enough. Like the guy that looks in the mirror and says, oh, that's, that's good. You ever, you ever remember the fawns? He'd look in the mirror with his comb, then he'd go, hey. That's good enough. That's good. But listen, we look in the word of God, we're not, we're not doing this. It has to affect change in our lives. There has to be some change. And so God's word is likened to a glass. As a matter of fact, I, I, I never put this verse down, and I should have. There's another passage of Scripture. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I believe it's verse 19, where it talks about how we behold through a glass. Right now it's dark, but as we look in that glass, we are changed into that image. We start plucking and pruning and fixing things that are out of place. Why? Because we want to look more like Christ. And so that's the whole purpose of the Word of God. And so it is a, we see, first of all, this careless experience, but I want you to see a changing experience. Here's what we ought to do. Verse 25, first of all, it's a call to behold, to take a long look. If any man among you, or sorry, verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not forgetful here, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. That word looketh there, the only other time it's actually used in the New Testament, it's translated the word stooped. And you'll remember that on the day of resurrection, Peter and John ran all the way to the tomb, and Peter barged right in with a boldness, but John, the Bible says, he stopped and he stooped, and he looked inside. 
That's the word looked here. It means to look intently. It means to have a curiosity and a wonder and a desire to know what what you're looking at. And so as we look into the Word of God, the Bible says we are to look into the perfect law of liberty and then make a decision to continue therein. So it's a call to behold, and as we consider that, first of all, it's a question of discerning. We're looking with a purpose, but then we have to make the decision to continue therein. We have to look and say, this is good for me. Whether I like it or not, this is a help. And so discernment kicks in and says, I'm going to continue therein. And then it's not just a question of discerning, number two, it's a question of doing. Are we applying it? The Bible says, he being not a forgetful hearer. That word forgetful is implying that there are those who make reformation a recurring event in their life. They're always down the altar for the same thing. They're always praying the same prayer. God, help me with this and forgive me for this. And the very next day we're doing the same thing. That's because we're forgetful. We're not remembering, one, the the penalty and the, the power of sin in our lives. And also we're not remembering the grace of God in our lives. But we also need to be a doer of the work, the Bible says. So it's a question of doing. Are we actually allowing God to make wholesale changes in our lives? It's about surrender. I had lunch today with uh, Pastor Dixon. Um, he's not pastoring right now, but he, he's about 65 and semi-retired and preaching about an itinerant ministry. And I've known him for several years. And so we met in Tilsonburg and we had a meeting about something. And so we were talking and he said this. He told me this and I thought it was interesting. He says, I was saved years ago in a Pentecostal church. And he said, it shocked me when I went to a Baptist church the invitation time. He said, what I mean is, he says, the pastor would preach with passion and conviction and then he'd come uh, to the invitation time and people would come to the altar and about 30 seconds, they'd kneel one knee, 30 seconds later they were gone. He says, the whole invitation would be done in five minutes. He says, in the Pentecostal church, he says, the pastor would preach, the music would start, and people would fill a prayer room outside the room, and he says they'd stay there sometimes 45 minutes, an hour, doing business with God. He says, that was the heyday of that church when we saw revival and lives changed because people were serious about the change. I thought, boy, isn't that interesting? I'm thinking about this topic tonight about the Bible affecting real change in our lives, and he made that connection for me. But that's what it takes is real surrender, real prayer. Whether you do it at an altar or you do it in your bedroom or in a prayer closet somewhere, we need to surrender to God and let him affect real change in our lives. So it's not just a question, uh, it's a question of discerning, looking and saying, I'm going to continue. But then you have to put it in practice and actually do it. And then we see letter B, it's a call to behave. A call to behave. Look at letter, uh, verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. And so now the word of God is changing us and he's saying, here's a test for you. How's your tongue? That's often the thing that Christians trip over the quickest. And so... Number one, a pretended religion described. One who does not bridle their tongue has a pretended religion. Letter A, the test. What is the test? If any man among you seem to be religious and brideth not his tongue, but deceiveth, he deceiveth his own heart. That's the test. Can you control your tongue? 
That's, that's the first step. And then here's the truth. This man's religion is vain. So we have a test and we have a truth. But then we see a practical religion described. Verse 27. Pure religion. So he's going to give us a contrast. A foolish man will just run his mouth. But somebody that truly has the Lord Jesus Christ and God has changed them and they're faithful to the word of God. And that's what religion means here is that religion is something that we do over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's our attempt to get closer to God in a spiritual sense, but as we think about it, the religion in a, just a pure sense, it's just doing the same thing over and over. And this religion here that we have, he's saying, are we applying the Word of God over and over and over? Are we learning? Are we growing? And so pure religion undefiled before men, or before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. So this practical religion described, first of all, involves unhindered giving. Unhindered giving. To visit the fatherless and widows. That word visit means to look upon in order to help or benefit. We see the word in Hebrews, again, where the Bible says that God visited the children of Israel. That word visited literally means he came with a purpose to help and to benefit. Jesus Christ came with a purpose to help and to benefit. He came to visit us. And so that's what this word visit means as well. So that's pure religion, not just a flyby and not just a uh, quick phone call, but literally, I'm going to stop by and try to be a help and a blessing. There's a practical application of the change that God makes in our lives. Has it been affected in us? And then we see not only an unhindered, unhindered giving, but an unstained living. Unstained living. Look at the last part. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That speaks of separation. Trying to live above the world. The Bible is a road map for living, but a map is only good if you look at it. We often make jokes about men not needing a map and never looking at a map. And the real tragedy is when we don't look at the Bible. And we aren't following the Bible. We might be hearers, but we're not doers. We need to, it's like looking at a map and saying, well, I see where the road is headed, but man, I think I'm going to go this way and this way and take a shortcut. Oh, you're not, you're not, you might be reading the map, but you're not doing the map. It's the same with the Word of God. It's our road map for living. It's our, Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of this, for the Word of God is quick and powerful. That's what affects change. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrows, and the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God must be engrafted. It must get in and take root. And when it does that, it begins to grow. And it changes us into his image. Pastor Paul, you come and take the prayer request tonight.